0: Is that it? There we go. Now you can hear me. Okay, this morning's scripture is from John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he, went, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all all of who you are, I just ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word. I pray ask that you would anoint Pastor Tom as he delivers it. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Today we continue our series, The Word, uh, studying the Gospel of John. And I want to remind you um, why we've said the study is so important, right? From the very, very beginning, I said the reason why studying the book of John is so important is because John goes out of his way to unfold for us, to show us, to teach us the most important topic we could ever study. He goes out of his way to unfold for us the very nature of Jesus Christ himself. The book of John was written um, by John with the intent of introducing Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles, for them to be able to see who he was, what he came to do, what he taught what his work was, what his theology was, and what ultimately it means for us. And so the book of John is this beautiful place that we go to, and we begin to discover a lot about who Jesus Christ is. And I think that truth is particularly important to remember as we dive into today's story. As we we continue to unfold the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, I want you to keep in mind the importance of the study. I want you to keep in mind that what we're really about here, what this is really all about, is us discovering about Jesus Christ himself, his nature, his ministry, his teaching. That this is really about Jesus. Because as the story unfolds, you begin to see the importance of the story is really rooted in that. Are we discovering about Jesus who Jesus is? Now, as we read it, it's, it's kind of a well-known um, story about the ministry of Jesus. It's the woman who's caught in adultery. And this story, um, I think, is important uh, to, to feel. I think this story is important to, to identify with. To really begin to understand that this is a real woman going through a real situation. It's the story of a young woman who found herself in a very desperate situation. Probably um, the most desperate situation a person could ever imagine finding themselves in. And she found herself there as not a victim, but as a participant. There's There's no question that she put herself in this situation. She put herself in this place. That she had made a series of decisions followed by a series of actions, and she became entangled in a relationship that she shouldn't have, that she knew was wrong, that she knew carried grave consequences. Well, she had made a lifelong commitment before God and before man to be faithful to her husband. She broke that vow, and she was now facing the consequences. Of those choices. And the context of, of her desperate situation is much different than the context with which we in the here and now might process or experience it, right? See, she had no option to simply file for divorce, uh, she had no option to just walk away. She had no option to apologize and say, I'm sorry, and go to counseling and rebuild her relationship. In in her time and in her space, if she was found out, if they would catch her, if she was guilty, she would die. And she was found out. And so everything proceeded exactly the way she knew it would. She was captured. She was tried. And she was stragged into the streets to face her death. So everything moved. Everything proceeded exactly as the way she knew it would until it didn't. Until Jesus stepped in. She was found out and she was accused and she was found guilty. And they dragged her into the public square to have her killed in the most horrific way. For a lot of us, we, we read the stories in the Bible of people being stoned to death. And I don't think we quite get the depth of what that means. This is, this is a crowd of people taking rocks. Not, not little stones, but rocks. And pummeling people with it until they're dead. It is a horrific sentence. And so this is what she was facing. And as they were bringing her to the to square and as they were about to kill her, they, they wanted to trap Jesus. But in their attempts at trapping Jesus, her life was spared. It is such a powerful story. But there's really something interesting about this story that I, I think we need to address to really capture the importance of this account. The truth is, this story was likely not, not a part of the book of John when he wrote it. For some of you, you might already ca- caught on to that. If you've opened up your Bible, if you've looked in your Bible, you may have seen some notes there, or double parentheses, or, or notation, about how this was, not, that was likely not in the book of John when he wrote it. Most New Testament scholars uh, do not think it was a part of the gospel of John when it was first written. And, and that it was added centuries later. For example, Don Carson is one of the best um, known New Testament scholars in the world. And he writes, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. Bruce Metzger is uh, one of the world's authorities on the text of the New Testament um, Uh, wrote, the evidence of of a non-Johan origin of the text of the adulteress is overwhelming. So many scholars doubt the authenticity of this as a part of the original work of John. And there's a lot of different reasons why um, they feel that way. And not the least of which is that um, the story is missing from all of the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. Um, and it isn't addressed by any of the early church fathers until that time. So nobody, nobody talks about it in the book of John for the first four or five hundred years. And then we see it and it pops up in, in the manuscripts. Now even though I'm talking about this, this introduces to us as a church um, uh, a discipline of scholarship um, relating to scripture known as textual criticism. Um, which is simply the study of looking at the veracity or the authenticity of a passage... Through different methods. And, and this is one place. In the gospel of John. Where textual criticism. Um, leads us to a conclusion. About the passage. We can look at it and we can say. This probably wasn't there. And that's ultimately what textual criticism. Allows us to do. It allows us to see. Whether or not something is authentic. whether 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 it is dependably in scripture. And the great thing is is even this passage ultimately leads us to a place where we can say that we trust what Scripture says. For a lot of us, we've probably heard people talk about it. Well, how do we know the Bible is this? How do we know that it wasn't changed? How do we know all that stuff? And that really gets to the heart of the question uh, of, of textual criticism. But even in when we look at what is written here in John, it, what it does is it teaches us that we can count on what the Bible says. Because we can read this and we can draw the conclusion that this likely wasn't in John. Why? Why can we draw that conclusion? Because we know what really was there. We have enough understanding of what was originally there. The reason we can make the claim that this wasn't likely in the original is because we can be immensely sure what was in the original. And the reason we can be so sure is because we have so many copies, handwritten copies over centuries with which we can make comparisons. We have nearly 28,000 handwritten manuscripts um, that date as early as the 2nd century. Now think about that. 28,000 handwritten copies that date very close to when Jesus Christ actually walked the earth. Um, and, and it allows us uh, to realize that this was being shared amongst the church for, that first, for the first um, very beginning of the church's development. And the uniformity of it all is, is really remarkable. You can look at the 28,000 copies and you can compare them and realize that, there's, that, that it's almost, um, they're almost all identical. There are small changes here and there, but its uniformity is amazing. When you compare what I just described to you... Um, to many ancient works that are accepted by scholars and are considered authentic, it is staggering. Um, as an example, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have a total of 10 copies. And the earliest copy um, dates to around 1,000 years after the events. Um, Homer's Iliad, which many of us studied in school, um, is second... Um, to the 28,000 biblical manuscripts in all of antiquity. And it's a total of 650 copies. And looking at the many different manuscripts and comparing the 28,000 to each other, you discover that the differences are remarkably insignificant. And it provides enough cross-reference that we can feel comfortable with the truth of what we read in our passage, in our scriptures, in the word of God. And that's what allows us to look at this and be able to say with confidence, it likely wasn't there. Now, with all of that being said, if I don't believe and if we don't believe that this was in the original gospel written by John, why do we choose to teach on it? Why do we think that it is worth embracing for our spiritual development? And this is where it is important to remember that the reason we are studying the book of John is to learn about Jesus. To learn about the nature of Jesus Christ and to learn about who he is and how he interacts with us. If I don't believe that this was in the original, why would I teach on it? Well, first of all, I believe that all the evidence points to the fact that what is recorded here actually happened. That this interaction actually took place. That this story is something that took place within the context of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Leading New Testament scholars believe these events likely happened. In fact, the same Don Carson, that says definitively that he does not believe that evidence points to this being in the original recording of John. Also says, there is little reason for doubting that the events here described actually occurred. There is much that happened in the life of Jesus Christ that wasn't recorded in the Gospels. There's much that, that took place in his life, much of his ministry, that we don't actually see in the Gospels. If you take the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ and, try and, and, and look at the Gospels, you'd only have a small portion of the time of his life. And in fact, we have it recorded even the book of John that says it, w- it would take volumes to, to record everything that took place in Christ's ministry. So, the, so, so it's very clear to believe that this type of event might have taken place. And in fact, what most scholars believe is that there are plenty of stories that circulated about the ministry of Jesus Christ in the 1st century, in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, that had witnesses, that, that had, been, it had been told over and over and over again. And so ultimately, the inclusion of this story is about something that likely took place in the life of Jesus that teaches us something about who Jesus Christ is. This likely happened and was added later because it was important to understanding who Jesus Christ is. It was added because the story does teach us about the nature and the theology of Jesus Christ. So I believe it is right to examine this as an account of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Even if it doesn't carry with it the authority of Scripture, it reflects very clearly the nature of Jesus Christ that we are looking to understand. understand. And it provides for us sound doctrine about what Jesus Christ taught us. And the other reason why I know that that's true is because as I unfold this story, I see the truth of what the rest of Scripture teaches me about Jesus Christ and His ministry. One of the reasons I, I think it is so important to address this story is because so many people misapply it. So many mis, people misdefine the, event, the events in an attempt to support a picture of Jesus Christ that the Bible does not support, that, that all of Scripture does not support. This is a story that likely took place. This this likely was something that Jesus Christ encountered and Jesus Christ did. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to look at it is because it teaches us so much about who Jesus Christ is and who Jesus Christ is as it's affirmed in scripture. That I think it's important for us to look at it, particularly because so many people look at it wrongly. And as a result, people suffer. The lesson that we learn from looking at the story of Jesus Christ is a lesson of what happens when we need mercy. It's a relevant question, isn't it? How does Jesus Christ respond when we are in need of mercy? Does anyone here feel as though at some point in your life you needed God's mercy? Does anybody here feel as though at some point in the future you might need God's mercy? So to me, as I look at this and I say, as I want to study Jesus Christ, I want to study the nature of Christ, I want to study the theology of Christ, it's important for me to understand, how does Jesus deal with me when I am in need of mercy? Take a moment and return to the story. The woman has been found out. She's being dragged, dragged to be killed. But the Pharisees, in their hubris, in their their hatred for Jesus, decide to cruelly use this woman's plight as an opportunity to trap him. Just think about that for a moment. This woman is is clinging to her life. This woman is in fear. And the Pharisees decide they're going to take the time to use her as a pawn in their attempts to trap Jesus. And they really feel like they have the opportunity to do this. Because what they're dealing with here is the law of Moses. They, they believe that, 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 that they could get Jesus to stand against that which Moses established. And on a, in an important topic, on an important, on an important issue... And I think that they they knew that they could trap him on this because they understood the compassionate heart of Jesus Christ. And so they were of the mind that he would embrace, that he wouldn't embrace the judgment established in the Old Covenant. And in doing that, they could say, this man denies the laws of Moses. See, the law of Moses required death. But Jesus on a number of occasions made it clear that there was a new covenant that, he would, that was being established through him and that he didn't always agree with, with the demands of the old covenant. When you read through his ministry, he challenged the Sabbath laws as they were interpreted by the Pharisees. He challenged the divorce laws in, in Matthew 19. And in Mark 7, he challenges the eating laws of the old covenant. And it says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So every step of the way, he's been okay with challenging the laws of Moses. Been okay okay with challenging the laws of the old covenant. And in Matthew 5, we get really close to the heart of the lesson of our story today. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, it's really interesting how Jesus, what Jesus says there. He says, you've heard it said. you know where it's, where it's said? It's said in the writings of Moses in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He says, you've heard it said in the writings of Moses, in the foundation of our faith, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not, resi- do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. When you hear this, when you read this, you see Jesus taking a posture of mercy again, don't you? So it was reasonable for the Pharisees to be able to come out and say, we're going to ask him what, what, what he thinks about the laws of Moses. And when he stands up and says, oh, no, no. We don't have to kill her. We'll get him. You know, the idea of turn the other cheek, that's one thing. But this is adultery. And the people will begin to turn against him. And will have him. So the Pharisees are coming to Jesus to see if he will contradict the law of Moses. And consistent with what he has said in the past, Jesus, as John Piper describes it, exalts himself above the law of Moses, changes its appointed punishment, and reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. Jesus establishes in this moment a truth that is relevant when we ask the question, what happens when we are in need of mercy? How does Jesus respond when we are in need of mercy? And what he says is, in me, you will find Way. In me, you will find a way to mercy. In me, you will find a pathway to grace. He says, come to me and you will find mercy. At the heart of the new covenant in Christ are the open arms of Christ. Waiting to receive those who are in need of mercy. Even as you hear that, even as you, even as you get that declaration... Isn't it the type of thing that each one of us who, who, who affirmed the idea that we have needed mercy and that we will likely need mercy again, when you hear that, doesn't that draw you closer into the truth of who Jesus Christ is? Doesn't it draw you closer into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Christ is waiting to receive those who are in need of mercy. And this, this, this reality is consistent throughout the teaching of God's word. The gospel message is the expression of God's mercy. In Titus 3 it says, "But when the goodness and loving kindness of our of our God our of God our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy." Jesus Christ in his appearing, in his mission came to save us by what means? His mercy. First Peter writes this and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and Hebrews 4 shows us how this is a continual open door where he, when it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy. You understand that the context of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give mercy to those who are in need of it. That, that we can continually draw near to the throne of grace and receive the mercy we need. The picture of this desperate woman painted in the story we have read reflects beautifully the opportunity we have in Jesus Christ. He is not looking to destroy people. He's not looking to reject people. He's not looking to turn people away. He has made a way for mercy to be poured out on those who desire it and those who seek it. It doesn't matter what you have done. You have the opportunity to receive mercy here today. For many of us, we keep our distance from God and from others because of the guilt of our sin. For many of us, we consider ourselves unworthy. And at the core of the destruction of our lives... Is the guilt of our sin. But Jesus Christ. Through his work. Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross. The shedding of his blood. The the new covenant that he establishes. That replaced the old covenant. And brought forth a covenant. That is rooted in the mercy of God. Is what we are here to receive. Is what is our, our, our redemption. It doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what has been done. The blood of Christ covers our sin. He's opened the doorway for you to have fellowship with him and to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. This is who Jesus Christ is. The story of the woman caught in adultery reflects beautifully the nature of Jesus Christ that we come here to learn that truth really has no meaning if you don't understand its context. The story doesn't help us if we don't press further in to see the nature of the mercy that is being offered. It says, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And when they heard it, Every time I read that, I am struck with how poignant a moment that is. When you feel the desperation of this woman, when you understand the depths of her fear, can you imagine the relief when Jesus says, has no one condemned you? And then when he replies and says, neither do I. Imagine how the fear is broken. How relief comes. How the, how, the, how the salve of mercy begins to heal. Each of us has been or can be in her place, aware of our condemned status, looking up into the eyes of our Savior. Who has cleared the room to make way for freedom in him? As I read this, what I realize is that I am not less unworthy than she, I am not less unworthy of the punishment that she was facing. Me and my own sin, my my own lust, my own dishonesty, my own pride. Each time throughout my life, making myself worthy of condemnation. But he has said to me, neither do I condemn you. And he says that to you. What a beautiful picture of God's grace to us. but it is an incomplete picture if we leave it there. We will not understand the nature of God's mercy. We will not really fully understand the answer to the question if we don't complete his statement to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, sin... Is an issue. And the mercy of God is made available to those who are willing to follow the pathway to God. Mercy is given where sin is confronted. And this is the place where where this story is used to misrepresent so often. Where it's used so often to misrepresent the nature of Jesus and the nature of the mercy that is extended to each one of us. The truth is, Jesus in this statement clarifies and confirms the verdict of the mob. You see, the mob was not wrong in saying, this woman is in sin. This woman is a sinner. When Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, he wasn't saying their determination was wrong, or they were wrong to point out her sin. In fact, Jesus does it later, right? He says, go and sin no more. He's saying what she's doing is sin. He was simply saying they didn't have the authority to kill her for her sin. And this is something I think is so important for us to clarify. Do you understand that when Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, it's not a metaphor? He's not talking about metaphorical stones. He's literally saying, he who is without sin, you you can pick up a big stone and crush someone to death. And the reason why I bring this for clarification is because there are so many Facebook theologians out there that the moment you point out sin, they say, oh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You cannot equate the idea of pointing... Rightfully, justifiably, biblically pointing out someone's sin with picking up stones and killing someone. Jesus pointed out their sin. And Jesus at no point said that the mob was wrong in pointing out her sin. He just said, you don't have the authority to punish her to death. That's all. And the truth is, the, the idea, the, the, the concept, the, 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 the act of pointing out sin is immensely important to the application of mercy. When I confront someone and say, what you're doing is sin, and the response is, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, is an insult to the nature of the mercy Christ is giving. Mercy is offered because there is offense. And it is offered as a way to move away from the pain and from the penalty of the offense of sin. If we do not clarify sin has taken place and that that mercy will meet repentance, our mercy is meaningless. Because mercy without clarity is affirmation. Mercy without clarity is practical permission. It's like continually finding your your teenage son looking at pornography online and not doing anything about it because you're being merciful. What Christ is doing here is consistent with his message throughout his ministry. What does Jesus say in Luke 5? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. And that included those in the sin of self-righteousness. It included those in the sin of greed. And it included those in the sin of sexual promiscuity. When I am in need of mercy, Jesus is ready to provide it. If we are ready to receive his pathway forward. The reason why this passage was so important to study is because it teaches us so much about the nature of Jesus Christ. Yes, sin is a problem. Yes, sin separates us from our Heavenly Father. And yes, if we continue in sin, there will be a punishment for our sin. There will be a price to pay for our sin. But Jesus, in his mercy, steps in and says, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. The concept of repentance is really simple. It literally means to turn and go a different direction. To stop continuing in the way which leads to your destruction. But turn out of mercy and grace. Turn in mercy and grace. Turn as a result of mercy and grace. And go a different direction. Go and sin no more. That is the great answer to the question. How does Jesus respond when I need mercy? His mercy is there to set you free from your sin. To forgive you and provide a path back to our Heavenly Father through repentance. That is the great joy and the great hope of mercy. We don't have to stay in our sin. Continue in our sin. Bear the weight of our sin. The reason why to me this passage means so much and is so worthy of study is because ultimately it shows us the totality of the ministry of Jesus Christ. What he came to do. To seek and save the lost. To call those who are sinners to repentance. And to provide through his blood shed on the cross, a new covenant, a covenant of mercy and grace where there is repentance. Whatever it is you wrestle with, whatever it is you're struggling with, the work of Jesus Christ was not so that you could stay in your sin. It was so that you could be called out from it. So that you could be changed. So that the addiction you have to your sin can be broken. The destruction that comes in your life because of your sin. Can be restored. This is the work of Jesus. And the mercy extends to you today. Are you prepared? To go and sin no more? His mercy is here for you that you can do that very thing. Dear Heavenly Father,